I grew up in small town Indiana, nowhere Indiana, really. Uh, and I grew up in Indiana at a day at a time when there was no cable television. There were no cell phones. There was no Internet. In fact, the one thing that we had in large quantities was something that's missing today, time. Just, you know, I, I can remember when I got my driver's license, going out into the cornfields and just staring at the stars, doing nothing, which is what pretty much everyone else did in small town nowhere, Indiana. Okay, nothing. Uh, and, and wonder, you know, and, but the thing is, when you've got time like that on your hands, you, you have a tendency to navel gaze. All of a sudden, the big questions of life will pop up. Why am I here? Why are my parents the way they are? Oh, wait, no, you never ask those questions, do you? That would be wrong. Bad Max, okay? No, the questions come to mind, okay? And purpose and meaning and all of that stuff and because you have time to think. And if you're older, like me, you've had a moment where there you were driving in the car or something, but you had that moment of, you know, is, is this all there is? I mean, is this job all there is to life? Isn't there more to this? Or, you know, why am I here? What does God want from me? Um, the funny thing is, about 10 years ago, I got clarity about that in a way that I had never had in my life. And I can tell you right now today, January 3rd, 2010, I know exactly why I'm here. I know why I'm here, and I know what I'm going to be doing the next 20, 40, 60 years, 80 years of my life. You're know, like doing the math. 80? Yeah, I could live to be 120. It could happen. Okay, we're living older these days. I want to see the church in the United States of America revitalized And I want to see church and family brought together in such a way that it begins to change our country. And I think it's possible, and I think God wants that to happen in the United States. Uh, But if if I have to be honest as a pastor, when it comes to the actual state of the church in America, uh, I have some misgivings about where we are. Uh, and there's some data that kind of scares the pants off of me when it comes to the state of the church in America. One of the things about church life in America is what I call maximizing. Um, maximizing comes from our culture of consumption. In America, we're all consumers, right? That's what the news people tell us. We, we Americans, we consume. We consume stuff. We buy things. We throw them in landfills. That's what we do. We're Americans, okay? Um, and that consumption has kind of made its way into the church in the sense that we, we approach things in church now with that same consumption mindset. And we have a tendency to, to do the, well, what's in it for my kids or my family or what can you offer me? And there's nothing, again, is that morally wrong? No, it's nothing morally wrong with that, but it has a tendency to change the, the, fa- the, uh, the fabric and the feel of what church is all about. Um, the second thing, about the the state of the church in America that concerns me is actual church attendance. And so today, I'm going to give you what I give my Asbury students. And you're going to see PowerPoint slides. Baby boomer professors do this all the time, and I just learned this year how to do PowerPoint slides, okay? Because I can be a grown-up too, all right? This this should light a fire under you, because I tell you, it lights a fire under me. For years and years and years, George Gallup has conducted a poll, and this is how what Gallup does. He calls thousands of Americans, and he says, has, has, has you, have you or a member of your household, have you or a member of your household attended a church service in the last seven days? 
And 40% of Americans will say, well, yes, yes, I have. And so this gets reported in the news and in the media. If you are watching, you know, Brian Williams on NBC News, he'll, you know, with that deadpan NBC News voice say that on any given Sunday, 40% of Americans are attending a church service. Is that really true, though? Um, Let's go to some slides. In the year 2000, uh, a number of sociologists actually questioned Gallup's methods because... uh, Uh, 15% of Americans, for example, say they tithe, and we know that only 3% do. So they, they, they took that and they said, well, what if Americans aren't being totally honest about their church attendance? What if they're actually going less frequently than they say they are? And so this is, this is what they, this is what they came up with. Um, and if you're wondering, well, what are we, what's generations? It would fall into the far left there, evangelical. Okay. Then there's mainline churches like the Methodists, the Presbyterians, uh, and then there's Catholics. All of us together in the year 2000, this is 10 years ago, represented 18.7% of the population. Go to the next slide, please. Um, So it's not 40% of Americans that are going to church on any given Sunday. It's actually how much, guys? 19%. All right, go to, go, to, go to the next slide. In, in the time period between 1990 and 2000, you can see that church attendance actually declined 2% on the whole. Uh, go to the next slide. Here, so you, uh, not all parts of the country are equal, so I will give credit to that. In fact, there are some states in that have a greater percentage of the population going to church than other states. And so the more brown you are in this map, the more people, you know, go to church regularly. The more white your state is, the fewer people go to church. And there you can see a percentage. So basically for the state of Kentucky, for where you and I live, on any given Sunday, one out of every five people are in church. Well, that's not so bad, one out of every five. Um, Go to the next slide. Here's the unfortunate reality, though, when you look at it uh, and you're like, oh, is this like red states, blue states? Well, sort of. Only in this map, the states that are red are states that showed an overall increase in church attendance from 1990 to 2000. All of the blue states are states in which church attendance declined. Can I ask you a question? Was it decline or gains? If this were the electoral map, it would be a landslide, baby, okay? <laughs> Hawaii, Hawaii's on fire, baby. I mean, they, I mean, if you study some of the churches and things that are going on in Hawaii, there really is a kind of a spiritual revitalization going, yes, in Hawaii of all places. Um, so go to, go, to the next, go to the next slide. Um, this, is, this is growth and decline by county because, you know, state's a big state, and that doesn't tell the whole story. Um, in this map, uh, the pink, the pink are the counties that showed an increase in church attendance. The blue are the counties that showed a decline. And obviously, as you can see, decline led gains by what three to one? Yeah, two to two or three to one. So go to the next slide. Uh, this, this is telling, uh, again, we're in the category of evangelical of the three clumps of, of Christians in America. 
um, in, between 1990 and 2000, there were 8,500 new churches started that were evangelical, okay? Um, that's great, isn't it? 8,500 new churches in the United States. The mainline churches closed 3,300. That was a net loss. Catholics closed 650, again, a net loss. So um, when you add those up, it was a net gain, a net gain of 4,600. Now, the number of churches that would have been needed to keep up with the 1990 figures, we actually needed to have started, what was that number there? 38,800 churches. See, I, church attendance is, is not a good indicator for me about where America's headed. Um, and go to the next slide. Basically, if these trends continue by the year 2050, 2050 uh, one out of 10 Americans will be in a church service on any given Sunday. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, basically it means from 1950. In 1950, it was about one out of every two Americans. So basically within 100 years' time in our country, we're going to go from one out of two people going to church to one out of 10 can I ask you a question? Do you think that's going to affect our country at all? The flavor and culture and values and stuff that goes on? Yeah, of course it is. This is huge. Um, and I, the last beef I have, so to speak, about the state of the church in America is the fact that uh, I believe all of our programming that we launched in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and we did, we did a great job in church. We pastors, we launched cool stuff. I mean, we had a wanna and, you know, brigades and all kinds of cool things that we did. And I think the net result is that over time it, it miscommunicated something to families. And it basically said to families, hey, if you give us your kids and you put your kids in these programming stuff, we will make sure they become strong followers of Jesus. And now after two or three decades of this, we can know the, the results and the statistics and, and, and the statistics are these. Um, we keep two out of ten of our Students, when they graduate, only two out of ten remain in church. Are we doing well? No, no, we're not. this is bad news. Okay, so I know, isn't this scary? I mean, have you seen these numbers? No, these numbers don't get reported in the news media because everybody follows the Gallup stuff. Um, and for those of you that want, if you want, you email me this week. I'll, sh I'll send you the links to, for this kind of information. Um, I think the state of the church in America is not doing so well. But I'm not discouraged because I believe God's at work. And I believe God's about to do something new and something cool and something marvelous. And I think you and I get to be a part of it. Um, if you brought a Bible, I want you to open it to the book of Nehemiah. As Nehemiah is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I love Nehemiah. Um, and we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 6 today. Um, here's the context for the book of Nehemiah. So here's a brief little history of Israel. Okay. In 587 B.C., a country called Babylon came in and invaded Judea. They conquered Judea, uh, Judah. Okay, thank you, Paul. Uh, they conquered Judah. They sacked and burned Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple. Okay? And the Babylonians had this really cool policy. Uh, when they invaded a country, they would take a big chunk of the population and relocate them somewhere else. It was the weirdest thing. So, you know, for example, if Canada were to do this and invade the United States and take over, it would be like they would show up here and they would go, okay, now you guys here, we're sending you to Mexico. 
you know, hasta la vista. Okay, now you guys, Siberia, da, good for you. <laughs> Cold, but good. Das you comrade. Okay, and that's what they did. It was one of the weirdest things. The Babylonians were strange, they, but it was effective. It just messed countries up because huge chunks of the population were just gone within a period of a decade. And they did that to Judea. Well, 70 years later, a new king comes into power and he agrees to let some of the Jews go back to Jerusalem. So they rebuild the temple and they try and get things going and it's just not working. People don't want to sacrifice and do the temple stuff anymore. There's not a real kind of allegiance to God and it, and it kind of fizzles out. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, somebody comes back from Jerusalem uh, to Babylon and gives a report. And this guy, Nehemiah, hears the report of what things are like in Jerusalem. And this is what he says in verse 4. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned. Okay? He developed a burden because he heard what Jerusalem was like. And he was, he was th- saying, no, 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 no. It shouldn't be like that. It should be so different. It should be so much better. This is God's city. These are God's people. It should not be what I just heard, this despair and broken down walls. And I mean, that's not God's stuff. I mean, he, he, he had a huge burden to do something about it. And so over the course of the next several chapters and through a series of God-ordained events, Nehemiah ends up in Jerusalem with the resources to do what nobody thought was possible, and that was fix up the walls and restore hope to people in a city that didn't have hope anymore. Um, and that's where we're going to pick things up in chapter 6. Uh, in chapter 6, uh, verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and had that no gaps had remained, though we had not yet hung the doors, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. Okay. So this Sanballat guy and these other people are, uh, uh, are non-Jews who didn't want the walls to rebuild, who wanted Jerusalem to ha- be defenseless and the people to be in despair. That was, they wanted that because they stood to gain by it. So they extended an invitation to Nehemiah, basically saying, hey, I know we've been enemies and whatnot. Let's, come on, let's gather in this valley and let's talk. Let's bury the hatchet. Let's be friends. And you know what Nehemiah says? But I realized they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending this message. I am doing a great work. I can't stop and come and meet you. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down, is what the NIV says. Um, Then in verses 6 and 7, if you flip down, uh, Sanballat sends a letter to Nehemiah. And in the letter it says this, Uh, Geshem tells me that everywhere he goes, he hears that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, and that's why you're building this wall. And according to his reports, you plan to be their king. And on the letter goes. Well, the letter was sent without a seal, which meant that the messenger carrying the letter had, what, read the letter and was going to spread the contents of the letter, which is basically a series of lies about Nehemiah. Um, And again, Nehemiah doesn't stop doing what he's doing. He stays put and he keeps working on the walls. Uh, Then, okay, so you've got criticism here that crops up in verses 6 and 7. This is what that is, nothing more than criticism. Then in verse 10, 
it escalates. Later, I went to visit Shemaiah, the son of Deliah and the grandson of, okay, all these people, who was confined to his house. And he said, let's go meet inside the temple of God and bolt the door shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. That's what this guy is saying to Nehemiah. You're a dead man. They're going to come kill you tonight. You've got you to gotta hide with me in the temple. And again, Nehemiah says, no, I'm not. So you've got three things that happen here in chapter 6. You've got uh, distractions in the beginning. Hey, come meet with me in the valley. And if you've got a vision, if you've got a burden for something, I've got, I've got news for you. You're going to have opportunities and distractions come your way that would take your focus away from this great work that God's calling you. In, in 2010, one of the temptations we'll face as a church is to take our focus away from what it is God's called us to do at Generations Community Church. But Nehemiah, in this story, he doesn't give in. He doesn't stop doing what he's doing. Um, and then the next thing, the thing with the open letter, criticism. America loves conformity. Even though we say that we, you know, we like things to be different and you know everybody tries to punk their hair and do whatever to be different but then everybody else punks their hair you know what i'm saying this is a culture of conformity it's all about conformity and if you start doing something different if you have a vision and a burden that's any way out of the ordinary you better expect that you're going to get criticism for it it's just natural what happens it's the natural way of uh, the way culture works but again nehemiah doesn't stop he doesn't let criticism stop him and the last thing is this, uh, they're, they're going to kill you tonight, Nehemiah, out and outright fear. Again, if you've got a vision and a burden for something, fear is going to settle in. And the way fear plays out when it comes to vision is this. Well, what if nobody helps? What if we don't have the resources? What if I'm not smart enough? What if I fail? What are the, uh, that's fear. And Nehemiah addresses the fear dead on and he basically prays to god and what nehemiah shows us is that don't look to yourself look to god of course you have the potential for failure but look to god don't if you're resting on your own strength then yeah you've got something to be worried about um why would i wade through nehemiah Uh, nehemiah is one of the best examples in the bible of vision and vision that's rooted in a problem and God coming through and doing something utterly amazing. At the end of chapter 6, uh, on verse 15, this is what it says. So on October 2nd, the walls were finally finished, just 52 days after we had begun. They accomplished something almost impossible at the time. I mean, these walls are thick, okay? These are, this, is not, this was not an easy project for him to, to have started. Uh, and, and the lesson for you and me is simple. I mean... If God orchestrates a vision and a burden for something, it's going to happen. And when it comes to Generations Community Church, when it comes to us and what we're trying to do, holy cow. We want to see the church revitalized, and we want to see church and family come together in such a way that it begins to change our country and change our city and change our families. Can you not tell me that that wouldn't represent a threat? to Satan and his kingdom? Can you not tell me that that wouldn't make a difference in the United States? Hello, that would make a huge difference. In 2010, I intend to adopt Nehemiah's stance, and that is, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. I don't intend to get distracted. 
Um, And if you're here today and if you're part of the Generations family, I want to suggest to you that God has a role for you in helping accomplish this vision and, and helping bring church and family together in such a way that it actually changes our country, changes our culture. Um, now, I happen to believe that God also has other things in store for you, right? Because I've, I've, I've sat and listened to a number of you, and I happen to believe that God's got all kinds of some amazing vision things are sitting in this room right now. There really are. Now, I know some of you are like, I don't, I don't know where to start. Why? I'm, I'm going to get there in a second. But I want to ask a couple of questions. Question number one, um, if money were no object and you could do whatever you wanted for the rest of your life, what would it be? I know, and you're like, oh, I've been asked that before. Well, see, some of you, though, when I ask that question, you know exactly what it is. You don't even have to, you don't even have to skip a breath. You know. See, all, just like Nehemiah, you already know what it is you're supposed to do. But I, I suspect you were like I was. You're afraid, and there are all these reasons why, and there's all this stuff. And um, uh, So that's my first question. My second question is this. Besides ministering, caring for, and loving the people most important to me, what's the number one thing I believe God wants to accomplish through me? For, for some of us, that's, that's the place to start. Besides ministering, caring for, and loving the people most important to me, what's the number one thing I believe God wants to accomplish through me? And I have a couple of, I have a couple of next steps, all right? So if you already know the answer to your que- of the question, uh, in other words, you are, if money were no object, you know exactly what you do, chances are you already have a vision. You already have a pretty strong purpose, and you already have a pretty strong sense of what God wants. If you've never read this book, then I would encourage you to read it. It's called Visioneering, and it's basically a workbook that walks you through the book of Nehemiah and how to map out and take steps of faith to actually walk out the vision that God's giving you. Um, If what I'm saying today is like, Max, I don't have a clue. Are you kidding me? Purpose? Why I'm, what I'm here for? I mean, the thought alone scares me to death that I would, you know, I have a second recommendation reading, okay? This is called Kazon. And this is a good little place to start when it comes to figuring out some things about where, what God might have for you in your life in the days ahead. And, if, and on the back of your card today, there's, a, there's an opportunity for you to say, I want to explore my purpose further by reading through Visioneering, or I want to explore my purpose further by reading Kazon. Check that off, would you please? And I'll make sure I give you links on how to get those books. And if you don't have the money for them, I'll buy them for you. That's how much I, this matters to me, okay? All right? If you'll read them. Uh, that's right. Just like, oh, yes, you got to read them. Okay. If we do, if we don't do anything at all, you saw the numbers up there on the screen. If we don't do anything, where's the church in the United States heading? Not a place of absolute irrelevance. 10% or less. Oh, yeah, Christians. I, I, I read about those. Weren't, didn't we have a lot of those way back a long time ago? Come on. I, I believe that living God's way is the best way. I believe that, that you and I have an opportunity right now in 2010, in the next decade, to make a difference. And I want to I ask you to partner with generations. We'll, and we'll help you figure out things unique to you. But I want to see church and family come together in a way that changes those numbers. I don't like those numbers. I think those numbers can change. I think God can change those numbers, and I think he can use you and me to do it. Um, 
the, the, the Jews of Nehemiah's day, they were committed to a single cause, and in 52 days they built walls that anybody at the day and time would have thought near impossible. And I think we have an opportunity to do the same today. So if on the, while we're singing our last couple of songs, you know, if there's anything you want to tell me or whatnot, write it on the back of your card today, and we'll collect them at the end of the service. Um, but state of the church... On a whole, not so good. But you know what? I, I, see, I see something that Nehemiah saw. I see an opportunity for God to do something amazing in the coming years and decade. And I hope that you'll be part of it.